I think that the next great fight after our Raisinets Actually Good is, are Twix not candy? Illinois categorizes Twix and Snickers bars as food and candy, respectively. Twix have flour, Snickers don't, and taxes them differently. And welcome to The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. This is Dara Lind. I am, while Matt is out of town, Sarah is on maternity leave, and Ezra is still until next week on book leave. Uh, He will be back on Tuesday for Weeds. I am holding down the fort. And while you might be expecting me to talk about immigration, I'm not. Because there's this other branch of government called the judicial branch, and the Supreme Court is nearing the end of its term. So I have with me to help me explain what the hell is going on with the Supreme Court, Andrew Prokop here in the D.C. studio, a senior reporter at Vox and senior correspondent, I guess, technically, Dylan Matthews, who is joining us up from New York and who is going to inter alia explain to me what the hell the uh, Chevron deference is, I guess. So As you may know, if you've vaguely been following things, the Supreme Court term ends traditionally at the end of June. Next week is the last week that they're probably going to be releasing opinions. And because the Supreme Court is a bunch of petty bitches who love drama, they traditionally wait to save their biggest cases until the end of the term. So we are still waiting on two of the biggest cases. We have gotten some interesting cases that have come down so far, especially in the last couple of weeks. And in particular, I was kind of hoping that, Andrew Prokop, you could explain to us what on earth happened with the two gerrymandering cases that came down on Monday, because everyone was very frustrated and I could not tell why. Okay, so there were two cases that came down, but really only one of them matters. Uh, The other one was kind of dismissed for procedural reasons. But uh, the big one is Gill versus Whitford. So to explain what's going on here... There's a lot of Supreme Court precedent for what exactly states can and cannot do when it comes to redistricting. But the precedent really falls into a couple of topics. The courts have stepped in to stop states from racially gerrymandering their districts too much. They've also stepped in to ensure that states adhere to the one person, one vote principle so that you know you can't make one district twice as more populous as as the district next to it. And those are pretty well protected in various decisions that have come down over the past few decades. But one area where the Supreme Court has never actually stepped in is when it comes to partisan gerrymandering. So that is, of course, when districts are drawn for the benefit of a certain party deliberately to try to prevent the other party from winning seats. And That's become a bigger and bigger issue in recent years with, uh, of course, Democrats have are more outraged about it than ever because Republicans dominated the last midterm elections before the last redistricting and gerrymandered like all over the place in uh, key congressional states and and state legislatures across the country, too. But the Supreme Court has never actually decided or ruled it proper to step in on partisan gerrymandering. And you can sort of understand why, because states have kind of freedom to draw 
their boundaries as they wish and and there's no kind of history of the court saying actually you can't do this because um, if a party wins too well and twists the district lines too much, like that's unconstitutional. Like this would be a new thing for the courts to decide. And the current status quo, we've been kind of in a holding pattern since this case in 2004. This is the uh, Veith versus Jubilara case. And uh, the conservatives had a 5-4 majority there. And four of the five conservatives said, we don't think we should step in and block partisan gerrymandering because we cannot think of any possible way that we could like set up a standard that would do that and make sense. Like we we cannot think of a way to say this amount of partisan gerrymandering is too much and is unconstitutional and the court should stop it from happening. However, there was a fifth justice in that case in the majority, Anthony Kennedy, who who loves drama more than anything. <laughs> he yes, the the Mr. Mr. Drama, he he Justice filed drama, a please. concurring opinion and his concurrence basically said he doesn't necessarily think that it's impossible for someone to think of a standard that the courts could then use to rein in partisan gerrymandering down the road. He just hasn't heard that standard yet. So, Wait, so he's like basically openly begging for other plaintiffs to like come up with things that Anthony Kennedy is going to be cool with. I, I think he's kind of like – signaling that he's not like the rest of the cold-hearted conservatives who are like, (laughs) you know, tough luck if your party gets gerrymandered out of contention. There's nothing in the Constitution that can stop that. Kennedy is signaling that maybe he can recognize that he can see how that could be a problem, but he's he just hasn't heard the practical solution for it yet. So since then, people have been trying to come up with those solutions for him, basically. And the current case, Gill versus Whitford, that was decided earlier this week, this is about the Wisconsin state legislature. And that is one of the most gerrymandered state legislatures in the country. The redistricting happened in 2011, and Republicans completely um, drew the lines to make sure that they could win so many seats and and Democrats would just have a very tough time uh, even in the case of a big wave if that were to materialize. It's still very hard to see how they could take back the state legislature. So a lot of activists and and, um, reformers have been trying to come up with a way for many years to sell Justice Kennedy on how to rein in partisan gerrymandering. So, Dylan, wh- why don't you tell us a bit about the um, the efficiency gap? Love the efficiency gap. So, <laughs> this is this is one of uh, of many uh, many solutions that were proposed as ways to sort of measure when gerrymandering went too far and when it didn't. So this is one that came from a law professor at UChicago named Nicholas Stephanopoulos and a political scientist named Eric McGee, both of whom, by the way, are Vox.com contributors. They came up with a relatively simple measure uh, based on this idea of, of wasted votes. So the idea is that sort of a wasted vote is is a vote above the level that you need to win. If you need to win like 51% of the vote, you get 80%, then about 
uh, 29% of the vote is is wasted because those people voted for you when they didn't really need to. And and also, if your votes are for the losing candidate, they're also wasted. Exactly. Because it's like, you know, in a single member district, technically to win, you only need 51% of the vote. So the way gerrymandering works is through this technique called packing and cracking. Like you can pack a lot of one party's voters, let's call them the Democratic Party voters, into a small number of districts so that they win those districts overwhelmingly, like 90 to 10 or 95 to 5. So what happens there is that so many Democratic voters are in those districts and they're not in other districts. So even in an evenly divided state, if you pack the Democratic support into a small number of districts and then the remaining Democratic voters, you crack them to make sure that they're not close to a majority in most of the other districts, then that's basically how you gerrymander. So votes can be wasted both in those 95 to 5 districts and also in districts where Republicans have 55 percent and Democrats have 45 percent because that 45 is just too low. Like the sweet spot for a partisan gerrymander is to get the party to comfortably but not overwhelmingly have the advantage in as many districts as possible. And yeah, I think Andrew's point is is important because like wasted votes are not a bad thing. Like it is good that we do not have like a Saddam Hussein era election system where all the results are 100 percent. If you have elections that are actually contested, you will have wasted votes. But the idea behind the efficiency gap is that you should have roughly similar numbers between the parties. And so what it is as a number is just one party's total wasted votes minus the other party's total wasted votes divided by all of the votes cast. And the idea is that that should be roughly even if the uh, districts are drawn fairly. But if it isn't even, that's a pretty good sign that some pretty hardcore gerrymandering is happening. And the efficiency gap in Wisconsin is like kind of nuts. It was 13% in 2012. And I think the the proposed threshold that Stephanopoulos and Mickey put out there is more like 7%. At 13%, like you would need like huge democratic landslides to overcome the basic bias of the map in order to get a, a majority in the legislature. So that was sort of the mathematical option that got worked out as the most promising and simple contender. And, and I think because it's relatively easy to explain in a court of law, it's these two like numbers in elections divided by another number. It seemed like the kind of thing that could meet Kennedy's request for, for sort of an intuitive standard that the court could adopt. So the, the reason that this seemed to be such a big deal and, and that a lot of reformers and activists were excited about it because they were like, this is the metric. This is the way we measure gerrymandering. This is the way we can say if this number is too high, there's too much gerrymandering. And there was a lot of optimism that four liberal justices as well as Justice Kennedy could conceivably be convinced that like to adopt this as the new nationwide standard for how to rein in partisan gerrymandering in America. And yet – <laughs> but that's not what happened. <laughs> Tell us what happened. Tell us what happened, please. Well, okay. So most people are describing what happened as a punt. And it's a little complicated what actually went down. Before a court can actually rule on the merits of a case, 
the plaintiff in the lawsuit first has to establish what's called standing. Uh, they need to demonstrate both that they have been injured by what they're suing over and that the courts can provide a remedy for this injury that they've suffered with their decision. In a lot of these highly charged political cases, there, there's kind of a, a trick going on where if you want to bring a lawsuit and get the Supreme Court to rule on this highly charged political topic a certain way, first you have to find the right plaintiffs and you have to find the right standing argument to get the courts to even agree to take it up in the first place. So a lot of times there's like this kind of plaintiff hunting where these ideological or interest groups are, are, are looking for the perfect plaintiffs, basically, that, that the courts will agree to and the perfect standing theory so that the courts will agree to actually take up the case and listen to it. And that is not what happened here. The justices unanimously agreed that the plaintiffs in this case, who were 12 Wisconsin voters in various districts, did not have the proper standing to sue with the arguments they made over the entire statewide map. So what happened is that they sued these voters in individual districts and they said, my votes are being too diluted according to this efficiency gap metric and I'm being deprived of my rights. And so therefore, the remedy I want is that the court should strike down the Wisconsin state legislature map as a whole. And the justices basically concluded in their majority opinion that you can't sue over an entire state map if you are just a voter living in one particular district and not making the case that it's your district that's the problem. So the arguments in the case basically focused on criticizing the map, using this efficiency gap metric to say the whole map is twisted. And um, the justices ruled that what the voters should have done was explain more about their own particular districts and how their districts were gerrymandered. And then uh, we say the justices, for the record, we're talking about, you know, this is a unanimous oh, yeah. holding by the court that they failed to demonstrate standing. But then the decision gets a little more complicated from there because, first off, what the court did is they sent it back to the district court to be re-argued. So not even like sending it back to the circuit court like they normally do. They like kicked it all the way back to the beginning. Well, well usually what they would have done in the lack of standing is to dismiss it entirely until – they could file it again. But it was Chief Justice Roberts who actually wrote that this was not a usual case. So they're going to sort of give plaintiffs a do-over in district court <laughs> now that they have better kind of instructions over how to demonstrate standing and make their arguments. So that's a little weird. So they punted. <laughs> yeah, or, right, or they like, called for a do-over under There are lots of ways that terms. the Supreme Court can punt. This was kind of a punt backwards with like, I don't know what there are used in football practices to like help punters aim the punts better, but that's basically what they None did. of us knows football well enough to make this analogy work. So Clarence Thomas and, and Neil Gorsuch actually disagreed with the, the decision to give this to a do-over. They said it should have been dismissed entirely, but, but they agreed generally that there shouldn't be standing. But the real action that has intrigued a lot of people is in what 
Justice Kagan and the other three liberals on the court did. They wrote a concurrence where they basically made it unmistakably clear that they think the courts should step in to rein in partisan gerrymandering. And they laid out various potential arguments that they could make. They they said they agreed. These voters did not properly demonstrate standing, so the court couldn't consider the merits in this case. But maybe they should make this argument next time around. So, So Kagan is encouraging them to make a First Amendment claim to say that their uh, rights for freedom of association have been hurt by gerrymandered maps. And Kagan is also saying basically that if the voters more clearly made the case that their own districts were really gerrymandered, then they could still sue to throw out the statewide map as a whole. They, They just didn't properly make that argument down there. So this is what the liberal justices think. But Kennedy did not sign on to this. So this is like the O.J. Simpson book, If I Did It, But If I Had Standing. And if we had a court majority. Right. Like This is kind of my question about this. Like We've seen a lot of 5-4 cases on this court where the four liberal justices have been united in dissent. Like Having four justices, if they're the wrong four justices on the court, doesn't necessarily mean anything for what the court's going to do in the future, right? Well, no one knows what Kennedy wants exactly. He <laughs> no clearly, one ever knows what Kennedy wants. He, he clearly was not ready to use this or, you know, the court as a whole just didn't buy the standing argument in this case that was presented. So so they didn't do the sweeping, you know, they didn't reject partisan gerrymandering uh, as a thing that the court should be reigning in or or they didn't endorse that as a thing that the court should be restricting. They just did not get to the merits at all. And so there's a lot of theorizing on just what Kagan and the liberals are up to here. I mean, are they just kind of hoping that given the arguments they presented, if it gets back up to the Supreme Court, that Kennedy will now be willing to be the fifth vote? Do they have reason to think that that Kennedy will agree with this and and maybe Kennedy for his own personal reasons has not technically signed on to their concurrence but they are they're still hoping that if he's still on the court next year and if gerrymandering manages to make it back up again that he does want to make this big sweeping legacy decision on creating a new standard to rein in partisan gerrymandering nationwide nobody knows but this doesn't necessarily kill the idea of the efficiency gap as like a principle in future right it's just a like no, not at all, all right. because they didn't they didn't rule on the merits at all. And the way I think about it is that they just they said, "Why don't you guys see if you can try slightly different arguments down at the district court level and then maybe we'll rule on this." Gotcha. So in 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 the future. So we find ourselves actually, I guess, in the weird position where the uh, the things the court has ruled on are more open in the future than at least one of the major cases the court hasn't ruled on. Because, uh, Dylan, you appear pretty convinced that in one of the two major remaining cases, the Janus versus Afsme case, that 
you know, you've you've read the stars and it is entirely clear what the opinion's going to be and who's going to write it? Um, so, yeah, I mean, if I'm wrong about this, you should feel free to, like, clip this on Twitter and dunk on me or whatever. But I am pretty confident that Janice, the public sector union case, is going to come down against the unions. I'm pretty confident that Alito is going to write a 5-4 opinion uh, against the unions, ruling basically that you can't charge public employees fees for collective bargaining if they don't want to be part of a union. So so when you say against the unions, that like in theory, this is against the particular like municipal union AFSCME, right? Yes, yes. That's that was my like glib cynical political take on this. To back up for a second, since I, I think unions are rare enough in America now that a, a lot of people don't sort of hear a lot about how this distinction works. <laughs> There, there are a bunch of different ways that a shop can be organized. And so one of those ways is where everyone in the shop is subject to uh, a bargaining agreement that gets worked out between the union and the employer. And then you have a choice of whether or not you personally join the union. And if you personally join the union, you uh, you have to pay dues and, and et cetera, et cetera. It used to be that you could require everyone to like formally join the union. Um, that changed in the late 40s. But – if you don't want to join the union for whatever reason, you don't disagree with their politics, you don't like unions, whatever. You're a hater. Yeah, whatever your reason. You still have to pay money because you're still getting something out of them. Um, and so you pay a, a, an amount that's typically lower than you would pay in full union dues called an agency fee. And so that's a payment that says, look, I don't want to be a member, but you, the union, are doing something for me. You're providing a service, you're negotiating with my employer, so I'm going to like kick in a little bit. So this is totally standard practice in a lot of places in the United States. There are some states that are known as right-to-work states, which have laws uh, banning agency fees. So you cannot, in, in your workplace, have a union arrangement like that. Not coincidentally, those places have seen declines in union membership um, because it creates this free rider problem of if the only people joining the union are like people who are willing to sacrifice money for no real reason – knowing that they could get the same benefits if they don't pay any money, then tons of people just stop paying the money. And so from the union's perspective, this is like a really terrible position that they're put in where people are pressured out of, of contributing uh, to to their collective bargaining effort. I, I often see this described as like the case that could kill public sector unions. Do you, is that hyperbole? Is that basically right? So... I don't think it will kill – I'll put it this way. I don't think it will kill public sector union agitation. Just to back up like briefly about like what the merits of the case are from the, the perspective of, of sort of constitutional law since you, you have to frame these things in a certain <laughs> way so they get <laughs> to the We will get into court. this a little bit later. Don't you worry. But yeah. So like this causes no problems in the private sector. But like – I don't know, something like 5% of the private sector is unionized now versus like 40% of the public sector. About as many people are in public sector unions as are in private sector unions, despite nowhere near as many people working in the public sector as working in the private sector. And so I think there's a sense within the union movement that like this is our last holdout. This is like the last part of the American economy where we have anything like a, a, a foothold. But it creates a constitutional issue or at least – According to judicial conservatives, it creates a constitutional issue because when you're compelling government employees to pay agency fees, that looks a lot like the government 
like which is the employer in this situation, forcing their employees to give money to a political organization. And there have been cases where the Supreme Court has said, like, this clearly goes too far. Um, there's a case called uh, Knox v. SEIU back in 2012 where SEIU had organized a bunch of government workers. Uh, they had some sort of, like, anti-union uh, measure that they were trying to fight. And so they organized something they called the SEIU, like, political fight back fund and then, like, made everyone kick in money for it. And the Supreme Court is like, no, you can't do that. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you, that is, like, compelled speech. Uh, you are, like, forcing people, whether they want to or not, to, like, give you money for political activities. Fight back is not conscription. Right. But – I think there's there's a part of the conservative legal movement which this case represents and which has been sort of building for a long time, which wants to go further than that and to say that like this idea at all is is compelled speech and that you just cannot have agency fees or any kind of required payments of public employees to unions without running afoul of the First Amendment. And to say that would be going against a 40-year-old precedent in this case called Abood where the courts sort of towed a pretty careful line in saying, like, yeah, you can't be required to make payments to a union that could be used for political purposes, but, like, it's legitimate if it's going to something else. And for a while, they were sort of observant of that precedent. Antonin Scalia, of all people, seemed sort of supportive of that idea. And then there was Knox. There's a case called Harris v. Quinn, which didn't involve government workers, but sort of private workers contracted by the government. Both of those were decisions written by Sam Alito. In both of them, Alito all but came out and said he wants to overrule Abood and and wants to like just completely annihilate this precedent and and say that you can't have agency fees. I think the expectation was there was a case called uh, Friedrichs uh, against the California Teachers Association where the expectation was that that was going to be Alito's chance to overrule this precedent. Then Scalia died. It was a 4-4 court um, by a 4-4 margin. Things got kicked back down. And I think the expectation was with Gorsuch on the court, there's now a 5-4 majority for a ruling like that. That's still where my my money is. I think there's an intriguing argument for why that wouldn't be the case, which we can get into later. But yeah, that's that's the basic argument that they're making. In terms of what this means for the, the public, sec- public sort of labor movement, I think one thing we've seen this year is – in places like West Virginia and um, Oklahoma, places that that have uh, right-to-work laws and, and have either emaciated or never strong to begin with labor movements, still a lot of like labor agitation by teachers and other public employees. Which uh, you may recall we had a Weeds episode about a few months ago with Alexia Fernandez-Campbell that we will happily put in show notes if you're curious. Exactly. So and Alexia is the person to read on this. She's written a bunch of great stories for us. But the bigger political context, right, is that there's public sector unions across the country are a major financial and organizing base generally for the Democratic Party in states. And uh, Republicans, through various means, have been trying to hurt them, rein in their power, um, you know, just just kind of fight back at like and things like Scott Walker's collective bargaining law and all. Which was specifically targeting public employees, yes, to, right. to recall. And other similar laws across the country. And a lot of people think that this lawsuit is kind of just a part of that overall strategy. Like this is about hurting 
groups that support the Democratic Party. That is why this this has become such a, a cornerstone of you know what what the Federalist Society wants, what other conservative legal groups want, and so on. But the Federalist Society is a disinterested group of scholars just trying to figure out what the Constitution means, Andrew. So, uh, so I actually I, I really really want to just like entirely skip the travel van case so that we can actually like dig into your your sarcasm there, Dylan. I will say this, and then we should probably break and talk about the like weird constitutional two-step that we have to play whenever we talk about the Supreme Court. But the thing I will say about the travel ban case, which is actually much more boring than either of these cases in terms of what's being argued, it's basically like, should the travel ban version of the travel ban currently in effect remain in effect or not? Um, the one thing I will say is that this has really become a question of whether the Supreme Court cares more about the presidency in the abstract, which it's given a lot of powers about, you know, national security and immigration and where like Justices Kennedy and Roberts in particular appear to be very concerned that if they restrict those powers at all, that like something terrible will happen and the president won't be able to use his like authoritative powers. And this president uh, who there is substantial circumstantial evidence is not necessarily the person who's thinking the hardest about, you know, sober national security choices, as opposed to he promised a Muslim ban and damn it, he's going to get a Muslim ban. So depending on how this case goes, and I think the outcome is much less assured than it is in Janus, even though the court has been, I think, more open to the Trump administration's arguments on this than lower courts have, it really is going to come down to, is Donald Trump enough of a, you know, an anomaly that it is worth it to make a ruling that is thinking about Donald Trump in the presidency rather than about the presidency itself, which also I think ties into the idea of whether we are talking about law or policy, which is what this half hour has implicitly been about. And I want to bring into explicit context after the break. So if you're like me, the list of books either that you want to read or that other people are telling you you should read is so much longer than the list of books you could possibly read at any point in your life. But Blinkist has solved this problem by taking thousands of the best-selling nonfiction books and distilling them down to their most impactful elements so you could read or listen to the major points in under 15 minutes from your phone. This seems personally absolutely life-changing when you consider how massive their catalog is. Personally, I'm super excited that they have Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman on here. That is a book that I often have to nod along when other people talk about how important it is to understanding human psychology and cognitive bias. Five million people are using Blinkist to expand their minds 15 minutes at a time. And right now, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. If you go to Blinkist.com slash weeds, you can start a free trial or get three months off a yearly plan if you sign up today. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, dot com slash weeds to start your free trial or get three months off your yearly plan. Blinkist.com slash weeds. So both of you have said things during kind of explaining these cases that have gotten to something that we don't often talk about explicitly when we're covering the Supreme Court, but is like always in the back of everyone's heads, which is that these are policy fights. They're fight they're political fights. They're fights that are about, you know, literally the political makeup of our legislatures, about one of the most powerful forces in democratic politics over the last several decades, you know, about whether this president is a threat to democracy or not, to kind of be hyperbolic about it. But 
when we talk about what the court is deciding, we don't talk about them as political fights. You know, Andrew, you said that there, you know, in a lot of these charged political cases, there's a trick going on with when you choose plaintiffs and, st- and what standing you go to. Dylan, you've been kind of, you know, snarking about the idea that the Federalist Society is a disinterested legal body. Like, we have to go through this, you know, arg- this rehearsing of these theoretically non partisan, non-ideological legal arguments. And those are also the arguments that the justices themselves are using, right? Like, Sam Alito is not going to come out next week and say, we're ruling for Janice because public sector unions are bad and the Democratic Party is bad. He's going to come out and talk about compelled speech and, you know, the freedom of association that someone has to not have to give their money to a political organization. So, like, this in the legal theory context, it's like known as the fight between legal idealism and legal realism, right? Are judges political actors uh, who are doing things because they want to achieve particular outcomes in the government system? Or are they the umpires who are calling balls and strikes? Are they operating or like even operating based on their own school of jurisprudence, but, you know, kind of deliberately turning a blind eye to the real world consequences and not trying to game their decisions to meet certain things. So I I think there are kind of two questions here, right? One is, is legal realism true? Is that an accurate way of describing the political system? And the second one, which might even be more interesting, is does the Supreme Court think legal realism is true? Like, do the justices actually understand themselves as political actors? And like, what would it mean if they did? Well, I mean, I, something that's important to keep in mind in these conversations is that the vast majority of Supreme Court actual like decisions are not about really highly charged controversial political right. issues. Right. Um, most of them, I mean, there's... There are topics that overlap with politics, of course, but but there was a case this term about like the Railroad Pensions Act, and like I'm sure people in the railroad sector have very fraught feelings about that, but like it it did not seem to hint like have high stakes political consequences. It was about reading an old bill, and you know then there are cases that do have political consequences, but where the court manages to find a way to be narrow about it, like. The, you know, last year's edition of the travel ban fight where they released an unsigned per curiam opinion where like, you know, the court holds and it wasn't clear whether everybody signed on or but, you know, nobody bothered to air a dissent. So like there are cases where they turn this into a kind of unanimous issue of jurisprudence rather than breaking down along partisan lines. I think they like to do that. There was. There was a a speech that Gorsuch gave about sort of his judicial philosophy about a year before he was nominated to the court, which is really interesting. And we should put it in show notes since, like, I think it's worth reading to understand him, where he, like, brings up as his favorite case in recent years. I think it was something to do with sentencing, but where it turned into a fight about a vague antecedent and how to interpret it. And and so, like, Sotomayor wrote one opinion. It was, like— Firm that the the antecedent did refer to to sort of the subject of the sentence, and Kagan wrote a, a the other opinion. I forget who is in dissent and who is in majority, but like arguing like no 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 no, it refers to this other thing in the sentence. And it was these like very high stakes fights about grammar. And I think like that's what Gorsuch says his dream of of the law is is just like a bunch of smart people arguing about the grammars and the bills. Um, <laughs> 
<laughs> but like it's really interesting to identify Sotomayor as one of the parties in that because one of the things that's been very interesting about Sotomayor in her, you know, several years on the court now is that she's not the best prose stylist on the court or even in the liberal wing. It's pretty well agreed that that's Lena Kagan. But she has shown an interest in putting kind of the reality of the policies under discussion into her rulings in a way that other justices often don't. This is a often especially true when she's talking about criminal justice or racial issues. Um, you know, she will pack in a bunch of empirics and kind of rhetorical acknowledgement that these are not just issues being decided in a vacuum. These are things that have been shaped by real world systems and perceptions. Yeah. And I, I think there's something about legal culture that that's pushing back against, um, to, to use an example from the Janice case, one of the interesting things there was that there was a, a couple of libertarian scholars, Eugene Volokh and Bill Bodd, who wrote something on behalf of the unions making this clever argument that, well, the government can choose to, to fund things that people don't like all the time. So why can't that include unions? <laughs> and and they don't like unions at all. But like I think they, like a lot of people in the law, view it as like a high stakes debate club where you're just trying to poke holes in each other's arguments for, uh, I, I don't know, for what, for like fun and to like figure out like what the Constitution really means. And so there are people who view themselves as like that. But I think any system that's sufficiently sincere is liable to capture by people who can observe its rules and then exploit them. <laughs> that That seems fair, but it also kind of – if you have now a Supreme Court justice who is kind of explicitly pushing back against that, like it does kind of raise the question of how sincere are the other Supreme Court justices? Like, you know, we often in cases, you know, the assumption is going to be that John Roberts is going to get to a narrow majority if he at all can uh, because he's extremely concerned about, you know, the court's legacy, like not not narrow in terms of a 5-4 majority, but narrow in terms of the holding of the case that, you know, he's going to cobble together the most votes for the narrowest holding. Uh, you know, there's this concern that Justice Kennedy has is thinking about his legacy and therefore is, you know, going to be particularly susceptible to arguments about the arc of history, which, you know, I think we saw in the Obergefell case a few years ago, like. Well, is it I, I true that these justices don't really understand themselves as shaping the system? I, I don't think the question is really about sincerity. I, I feel pretty confident that they tend to believe in their own arguments. And, you know, when Kennedy is is thinking about his same-sex marriage decision, maybe he is not thinking about the law and legal precedent, but through his reading of is this a role for the courts to step in and – protect recognized changes in society, protect uh, the rights of a traditionally disadvantaged group. Is is this something we should be doing? He pretty clearly in that case sincerely thinks, yes, he should. And I, I think like, you know, when we think about what's the difference between conservative justices or judges and, and liberal justices or judges? And like, I, I tend to think of it as sort of what what sorts of groups, plaintiffs, rights, do they feel a little more sympathy towards? Are they a little more open towards? Like, you know, are you more likely to generally side with business or labor in an edge case? Are you more 
likely to try to because these are all like sort of uh, difficult legal questions that go up to this level. It's not like stuff where there is necessarily clear answers in the past. So on these edge cases, like is it a question of religious liberty for Christians that's up? Is it a question for the rights of um, racial or sexual minorities that's coming up? And and then what kind of a person the justice is and, and whether they're conservative or liberal is often sort of working backwards from which groups do they tend to have more sympathy with in this process. But I worry that that's almost more dangerous though, right? Because if you're like, if you in fact on, say, business versus labor issues, which are going to cut across a bunch of areas of law, right? We're talking about, like, labor as a First Amendment thing versus interpreting actual labor law uh, versus the interstate commerce clause on, you know, what the federal government can regulate, et cetera, et cetera. If you're consistently coming down on the side of one party in those, rather than having a consistent jurisprudential standard, you know, for the types of issues at hand, but you don't think that you're doing that, or rather, you don't think that that's what's motivating you. You think you're motivated by jurisprudential considerations. That seems like a worse mindset for someone who's being given a great deal of power. I like I'm almost more worried if these are a bunch of people who actually are always going to jerk right or left, but are telling themselves that they're always seeing straight. I mean, it might be concerning, but it's also like how we know most humans reason about politics. <laughs> that if if it's just the case that the Supreme Court is like everyone else liable to motivated reason reasoning to like read evidence to support their priors and not otherwise to like selectively disregard and and it sort of emphasize different pieces of evidence like that's just like how all of us think about politics and there's like lots of psychological research to back that up and I think sometimes we have this fantasy that like elites, in, in the policy realm are immune to that, but they're not. And and like just because you went to Yale Law does not mean you are not like prone to those kinds of lapses in reasoning. Uh, for the record, none of us in this conversation went to Yale Law. That is the hypothetical. Or any you know. law school. It's kind of weird. Yeah, this is great. Uh, if we had gone to law school, we wouldn't have gone into journalism, which is more fun. Anyway, I guess my question then is how long can this sustain itself? Because I am kind of seeing evidence that in some regards, the Supreme Court is more open to talking about how the world actually works than it would have been several years ago. Like we just saw today in the Carpenter case on the use of cell towers uh, for law enforcement records for, for investigation, you know, Judge Roberts in his majority opinion being very like clear about this particular technology is getting a lot better and more specific, and therefore we should be especially careful with telling law enforcement that it can use it. You know, we talked about Sotomayor's tendency to use empirics. Some of the cases that have been decided, you know, the when we were talking about the Masterpiece Cake Shop case a few weeks ago, one of the things that really came up there was that the attitudes that government actors had as government actors played into the decision of whether their actions had been lawful or not. And so, like, I kind of wonder if the Supreme Court is paying more attention to real world context, can it survive without understanding that it, too, is part of that context? But I mean, how how is this different from, like, reversing school segregation or other sorts of interventions in the past. Like the o Obamacare was like a real law and the court 
decided to leave it in place. I I, I just sort, sort of, of they they kneecapped it in certain <laughs> yes. ways. They they modified it uh, too, but but I don't know. I, I feel like the court is always grappling with facts on the ground, and then they sort of look at like like the Carpenter decision today. The question was. Did new technology over cell phone location tracking that can theoretically tell the government everywhere you've gone with your phone, uh, what does the Fourth Amendment mean for that? And it is a question that they hadn't really decided on before. But, you know, it's, 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 it seems sort of similar to me for, you know, what, what does the Constitution say all of a sudden about segregation in schools at, at the time of Bradford's mm. Board of Education and stuff like that. So the other question of can the Supreme Court survive, not to be too labored in a transition here, is like, I let, Nicely let's, done. Yeah, 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 let's talk about Anthony Kennedy. <laughs> like, at this point in the term, it kind of looks like he's not going to retire, but like, it's very difficult to talk about the Supreme Court and not talk about the fact that its swing vote is widely considered to be the next dude up for retirement. <laughs> Under a Republican president who has shown a willingness to, you know, appoint extremely conservative justices, Dylan, you mentioned, and not to like blow up your spot uh, or anything, but you mentioned a while back that you had actually changed your mind about the importance of Kennedy to the court. And I extremely want to know why that is. So, yeah, so I had this whole hot take prepared about why it didn't really matter that Kennedy was was retiring because I think he's a lot more conservative than people give him credit for. Um, that that his liberal decisions tend to be very amplified to people. I think that was partly just like a reasoning failure in that if he retires and he's replaced with a doctrinaire conservative, like the the points of difference will only be on those issues where he's like more left leaning, like abortion, gay rights, um, certain criminal cases. And so I, I think I I just sort of been sloppy and not thinking through that that sort of obvious aspect of it. I think the other thing is just how likely it is that Roe gets overturned. And and I think there are decent cases to be made in each direction there. That I think the case that it stays is John Roberts is very aware that the court is, is this tiny building in D.C. that has no enforcement power and that he, if he rocks the boat too much, like he could permanently damage the the court's reputation and, and ability to to do its job. And so maybe he doesn't want to overturn a 40-year-old precedent that's at the core of a, a central political debate in, in American life. And also, like, related to that is, is just, like, whether he gets a case. It can take years for things to filter up. It might be that the anti-abortion movement decides that they don't want to, like, pass of of all-out ban in South Dakota or something and then work it all the way up to the Supreme Court that they want to chip away piece by piece, like pass a 20-week ban, say. And then you wouldn't get, in all likelihood, a, a, a full reversal of Roe. And I think the other thing is, so as, as you both know, my my partner used to uh, work in, in Reaper Rights, and nothing I say here reflects her views at all, and I don't want to blow up anyone's spot. I get the sense that there is there is a belief in some quarters that the fight has been so many restrictions have been allowed to be placed on access to abortion in so many parts of the country. And access is so geographically dependent now um, in a way that it wasn't in the immediate aftermath of Roe and that has been enabled by the court giving leeway to state governments to regulate abortions more, more strenuously that – 
the all-out states can do whatever they want outcome of a row reversal might not be as different from from the status quo today as as we think it is. That's not to say that like it's not important to abortion rights group to keep row. Like obviously it is, and and like it's it's a, a legal precedent that they have that is valuable. But that that we might underrate how how bad things are for for the abortion rights movement uh, right now, even without that. So. The thing that I was really expecting you to say, and that like hasn't come up, and that I'm I think sorry is, for no, 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 no. But, but like, but I think that is like actually maybe the argument for why Kennedy matters. Another argument for why Kennedy matters is Donald Trump, right? Like, a lot of the chatter about whether Kennedy is going to retire or not has been centered around the question of, you know, usually under a Republican president, conservative. Supreme Court justices feel comfortable retiring, you know, vice versa under a Democratic president because they know that whoever's going to get appointed in their stead is going to be like more or less in line with their views. But when it comes to Donald Trump, who, while he has a good track record on appointing judges, doesn't appear to particularly respect conservative jurisprudence or often the judicial branch at all. The question of whether Anthony Kennedy is going to be super cool with letting this man pick his successor is a very live one, maybe not for ideological reasons, but for, you know, egotistical ones that he doesn't believe that Trump respects him or his institution. And, you know, I kind of wonder, you know, that is that's that's why Kennedy might be theoretically a swing vote on the travel ban case, for example. There are definitely other cases, you know, especially as we get in enough into the Trump administration that these aren't like the end stages of cases that were initially brought under Obama's presidency, you can see a world where more and more the cases coming up to the Supreme Court are about in some way decisions that the Trump administration has made. And I'm wondering what you guys think about whether that's going to change the attitude that the court takes at all, especially with Kennedy kind of, you know, having one eye on history. Well, I've, I've heard the theory floated that Kennedy may choose to stay on because he would want to be, you know, the indispensable man, the fifth vote who <laughs> who saves democracy or not, like, but based on some big Trump era case that goes up to him. But I, I don't know. It's like reading his mind is difficult. One thing and that- And yet somehow <laughs> the most important thing that any Supreme Court watcher could do. Yeah. But I mean, to set the political background up a little bit- there has been chatter in conservative legal circles in D.C. for months now that there was a strong chance that Kennedy would retire at the end of this term. Senators have been talking about it openly. Mitch McConnell was heard talking to his wife about it on the street of D.C. one day saying, I'd really love to his have wife, that Kennedy seat. Uh, Transportation Secretary Elaine Chao. Yep, yep, yep. And um, he like reportedly was telling clerks he was interviewing that he might not be there. Yeah, I, of course. How much of that is Anthony Kennedy being the biggest drama queen on the Supreme Court, though? But I, I mean, there, there's just so much there, and part of it may be wishful thinking from conservatives who would like, really, really like to replace this squishy conservative with a solid conservative. But there's been enough there that you kind of have to think that it's at least a possibility, and you can read his his recent actions in several different ways, like like the gerrymandering case that we started with. As I said, he said um, back in 2004 that maybe there was a, a standard on partisan gerrymandering that, that 
one day he would agree to. And he did not yet agree to it in this case, which which was kind of a punt. So the question is, is that something he does because he's headed out the door and he doesn't want to sign on to like a, a big sweeping opinion that, that with the four liberals that might be reversed by his successor the very next year? Or is it that he's going to be around next year? So he's he's calling for a do-over uh, because he hope he does want to make this sweeping opinion and and he wants to do it next year. You can argue it basically both ways, but what what the conservative chatter seems to be is that you know even though he is a squishy conservative, the impression they have is that he would rather be replaced by a Republican president than a Democratic one. And you know who knows what's going to happen in the 2018 midterms when it comes to the Senate. Uh, Republicans seem to have the advantage to hold on to it, but if it's a wave election, you never know. Weird things could happen. So if he really does want Donald Trump to fill his seat and get his successor confirmed by a Republican-controlled Senate, now is the time to do it. And if he's going to step down, we're either going to hear about it like it would happen next week. He He's not going to do it in the middle of the summer. He's not going to do it like in the fall, it's it, if he doesn't announce he's retiring next week, then most people think that he's he's around for the entire next year. So, OK, so here's the fun speculation. If he doesn't announce he's retiring next week, uh, Donald Trump is not a man who is known for his patience. He's been adding names to his Supreme Court watch list, like in kind of an increasingly throat cleary sort of way. Isn't there a scenario in which Trump drops too many hints or outright asks someone to pressure Anthony Kennedy to retire? And what happens then? I honestly don't think Trump has been too focused on this. He's worried about Robert Mueller and and Michael Cohen and, you know, the border wall. While we're speculating about this, like, 80-somethings career decisions, which, like, affect the fate of the republic because we've chosen this insane system to govern us, like, people die sometimes. (laughs) Like, it's not polite Antonin to talk Scalia about. famously died. <laughs> famously died while serving on the Supreme Court. Ruth Bader Ginsburg is super old and has had cancer multiple times. Uh, Stephen Breyer is in his early 80s. Anthony Kennedy is in his early 80s. These are ages in which, like, well-educated Americans typically die. Like, we can speculate all day about, like, when Kennedy will choose to retire. But just, like, actuarially... Like someone is gonna go, and and like Trump will have another shot at the Supreme Court, and I think like we need to emotionally prepare for that. So I I literally went right from I suppose it's unfair to uh, it's greedy or unreasonable to think about new ways in which there might be drama in this administration. But Dylan, you have successfully reminded us that more drama on more fronts is always inevitable under Trump. With that, thanks much to Dylan and Andrew for being on. Thank you to our producer, Bridget Armstrong, and to our engineers, Jelani Carter and Griffin Tanner. Thanks to our social team, Julie Bogan, and this week, Lauren Katz, for operating the Weeds Facebook group. Please join the Weeds Facebook group. If nothing else, it will give you a chance to dunk on Dylan if Janice goes the other way. Thank you very much. We will be back on Tuesday with Matt and Ezra. So those of you who have been wishing that Ezra would extend his book leave extra long and not come back, I am sorry to disappoint you, but we will hear from you Tuesday.